You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your friendly neighborhood sexologist, Jess O'Reilly, here with my partner in life, partner in crime, partner in love, Mr. Brandon Ware. Hey, always happy to be here. Today we are joined by Mari Ramsewak. You are a model, a creator, a writer, and your work focuses on social equity and inclusion. I've been reading that you teach workshops about ableism, and you recently wrote a piece on incontinence as a public health issue. And this is something not only that is ignored, that we don't talk about, but it's not represented in almost any of the media we consume, except as the butt of jokes. Can you explain why incontinence should be considered a public health issue and share your insights? With incontinence, um, it can be a symptom for a lot of people. It can be a complication of of, um, many different things for a lot of um, people who get pregnant. After childbirth, um, they can experience incontinence um, because of the whole experience of childbirth, Um, but also for people who experience any kind of paralysis from the waist down, really any other kind of uh, issues. Um, incontinence can be something that occurs um, because of another reason. So for myself, I have spina bifida. I have partial paralysis from the waist down. So I experience incontinence uh, because of my nerves don't all make it to everywhere they need to be. Um, and as you mentioned, it's off, we are often the butt of the joke. I remember being in a workshop and the workshop facilitator was talking, um, was doing a thought exercise where you're like imagining yourself on the bus and then they made a joke about uh there being like the one pea seat on the TTC that nobody wants to sit in and as someone who experienced incontinence and has experienced incontinence on public transit it was one of those moments that really took me out of the moment um and made me feel really bad and I kind of felt really awful for the rest of the day and um this was kind of before I ever really talked about incontinence publicly so I didn't really know what to do or how to feel. Um, And that's why I ended up writing that article. Uh, It was just like being in an anti-oppression workshop and coming away from it feeling like that was definitely something that didn't feel great. And so when we think about incontinence, I think a lot of people think of, as you said, postpartum incontinence, but people live with incontinence their entire lives. And this affects relationships. It affects whether or not you can work. It affects your social interactions. Uh, How have you coped with this? What coping strategies do you use? And what do you want people to understand about your experience? Well, for me, it was a very, like I've lived with incontinence my whole life. um, And it was something that was very difficult for me to cope with um, when I was younger. I wore those like uh, pull-ups diapers um, well into elementary school um, until I started to get mocked and bullied. Um, And that's when I started to uh, stop wearing them and try to cope without them. Those first few years were really um, almost traumatic for me because it was very difficult to manage those, um, to manage the incontinence without the kind of uh, safety net of of those diapers. Um, But I really just didn't want to be singled out anymore by my peers. I didn't want to feel different. And um, also because of the incontinence, I was also kind of relegated to the accessible bathroom at school, which involved getting a key, 
um, from the office in order to go to the bathroom and then you got to take the key back and then so if you're doing it on break or something that's your whole recess gone right there um, and so I didn't really have a chance to really actually spend time with my peers even at recess or lunch or something because I was spending 10-15 minutes just going to the bathroom and coming back. Um, after that it just became kind of concept of trial and error but uh, it's still difficult. There are times when I've had to uh, leave work um, because I had a bout of incontinence I wasn't expecting because of coffee or my period came or you know anything like there's so many things that can affect your your bladder and your bowels Um, and so no matter how much preparation you do no matter how much you prepare there's it's not always controllable and I think that's the thing I want people to understand is that um, it's not always something you can manage it's not always something that you can really deal with and until we're talking about it until we're being open and honest about it um Things like this are going to keep happening to people experiencing continence uh, because it is very difficult to be the person wearing diapers into adulthood, um, especially when, you know, you hear adult diapers either as like a kink joke or, you know, um, as a way to kind of put down uh, disabled or elderly people. Um, You know, you only really hear of adult diapers as something to kind of dread needing later in life or, you know, something like that. Um, Or it's like something kinky people do and just not, it doesn't always have to do with sex. And those two things can sometimes become erroneously conflated because I was reading your piece and you had a a healthcare practitioner. Can you tell us that story, how they conflated your lived reality with someone else's sexual kink and fetishized you and your own, your own health? Yeah, so um, when I first started to become sexually active, I was experiencing incontinence during um, sexual activities, and it was very embarrassing, even though at the time I had a very understanding partner. Um, And so when I went into one of my checkups, I had one of those moments where they shooed my mom out of the the room, and they were like, if you want to talk about anything um, you know, you don't want your mom to know about now's the time. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm experiencing incontinence during sex and it's really awkward and uncomfortable. And, you know, I wish there was something that we could do about it. And they basically said, um, that other than just making sure I go to the bathroom first, there was nothing I could really do. And then she just kind of made this offhand remark, like, but you know, there are people who are into that kind of thing. And I was like, um, that's not really reassuring. Like, in those moments, I don't feel sexy. And I don't feel, you know, like, uh, it doesn't get me hot. It doesn't get me um, turned on. And so to kind of tell someone, well, your options for sex are to just find someone who's into that, didn't really comfort me at all. And it didn't provide any solutions and they didn't offer any solutions and that was kind of the hardest part was their only solution was to just find someone who thinks my lived experience is hot and um, while there are times where that can be helpful um, most of the time when that kind of thing happens I just need someone to comfort me and take care of me not turn it into a a sexual experience for themselves because that's actually not really about you yeah and you 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 talk about disability 
uh, you are a disabled model or a model with a disability. And do you find that this fetishization of disability is something that you've run into either personally or professionally? Um, professionally, not so much, just because um, I only do the modeling part-time. It's very difficult to find work um, being four foot 11 and disabled, um, as well as trans, so finding roles where I'm not kind of relegated to kind of identify myself as a woman. Um, having all three of those things line up can be very difficult. But personally, in terms of disability, I found that uh, once I became more open about my disability, I found even in like the uh, sex positive community and the queer community, um, that more people were responding to me with this over-enthusiasm. Well, at the same time, um, my dating prospects went down it was this really weird experience where suddenly everyone was interested in me when I would show up at parties with my cane and things like that. And they want to ask me questions and, and tell me a lot of things. But at the end of the day, they were all going home with other people. And to, you know, when you're going out to, to parties, you're going for the social aspect. You're not going to educate people. And, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, I do just want to, you know, get somebody's phone number or, you know, go on a date or go home with somebody. And uh, I definitely found that as soon as my disability became more visible, um, the actual dating prospects went down, but everybody's interest in me went up. Right. You're expected to be this resource that speaks for all people mm -hmm. with disabilities. And of course, even when I think about the questions to ask you, I don't want to put you in that position. Having said that, you're also sharing information with people. So I do want to ask about your work around disability, because I've been reading through your Twitter feed. And you recently posted about, about the broad nature of disability and what is included under disability. So would you mind helping us to understand how you define disability in an inclusive way? So I think disability is something that um, you kind of have to self-identify with. I think putting disability onto other people can be very problematic, um, especially because there are some identities that don't um, necessarily identify with disability, like the deaf community doesn't necessarily consider themselves disabled. Um, they're just deaf right. a uh, or hard of hearing. And mm -hmm. yeah, they have their own uh, language. They have mm -hmm. um, their own ways of communicating. And um, that also comes with their own culture. Um, and there are some kind of factions of the autistic community who don't like to identify as disabled because they just... Uh, view their differences as just differences mm -hmm. and not necessarily something that impairs or limits them uh, more broadly. But that being said, I feel like a lot of things we label as disabilities also kind of experience that. Um, you know, wheelchair users find that it's, uh, it's not necessarily needing the wheelchair that's there that limits them. It's society at large. Um, so there's kind of a very broad aspect to it. But when I talk about disability, I talk about pretty much anything uh, that can be under the umbrella, which includes disabilities related to mental health. Um, so things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, or things like uh, that are neurodivergent. So autism, ADHD, um, which I also have, um, the ADHD, as well as physical, sensory, and um, there's just a whole broad spectrum, and um, as well as 
people with chronic illnesses. They may not necessarily identify as having a disability, um, but their experiences are very important in those conversations because a lot of those experiences do overlap. Right. And I think it's interesting that you talk about the disability not always being what affects or creates impediments that, uh, you know, adversely affect relationships or sex or life in general, but often it's the ableism, right? It's a it's a culture that doesn't create accessible spaces. It's a culture that maybe doesn't know how to use language or is even afraid to speak. I know I find myself always wanting to be mindful of the language people use and language is always changing. And so finding the balance between asking what you prefer in terms of language, but also not assuming that what you prefer is what somebody else prefers, right? Not speaking of people who have disabilities as a monolith. In terms of your dating experience, how has ableism affected dating, relationships, and sex? So for me, ableism has affected um, sex and and relationships for me uh, in that I can't always do what everybody else around me can do socially. Um, So I can't do you know, parties every weekend, uh, go out clubbing or or anything like that, that a lot of um, people my own age uh, often do when they're going out to meet people. Um, and often I think it kind of makes people think that I'm boring or something because, you know, when they're asking me like, like, what did you do? And I'm like, I watched like eight hours of Netflix over the weekend. Like, I have so much to talk about. How is that boring? <laughs> just just to interject. What are you watching? Um, oh, so much. Um, right now, we, me and my partner have started Murdoch Mysteries from the beginning. Um, so we're only on season two, but we're having a blast. Um, but yeah, like uh, a lot of people don't find that to be kind of uh, what people my age should be doing when they're out having fun and things like that. Uh, but dealing with chronic pain a lot, uh, I just often can't go out, um, especially living in a very inaccessible apartment. It's the only apartment I could afford, but it's a fourth floor walk-up. So yeah, even coming here, I was like, one flight of stairs is fine. Like (laughs) I do four times that on my way home. So um, yeah, like to just go out and come back to my home can be uh, quite an ordeal for me. Uh, So a lot of the time, I'm just not as active in social as people think I should be. And a lot of the time, I think people also take that to mean that I'm not interested in being uh, social with them specifically. Um, Like even my mom will be like, I only see you like once a month. And like, you know, like I never, like we, we only ever talk on the phone. I'm like, I see you more often than I see my friends. Like once a month is amazing for a lot of people who know me. And, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that. So when they don't hear from me for a few months, they're like, oh, you don't want to hang out anymore. And I'm like, I would love to if I could, if it wasn't going to cause me a lot of pain. So you have to be really clear about what your relationships, not just intimate relationships, but friendships and all sorts of relationships will look like, which to me is a lesson that we all can take because regardless of whether you have a disability or you don't have a disability, our needs for socializing are so different. Definitely, especially as someone who's very introverted as well. Um, Big group settings can often be very overwhelming for me. Um, But I also see it with people who work multiple jobs or, you know, have long commutes uh, to or from work if they're coming from outside the city or something like that. Um, You know, there's lots of reasons why people can't just 
be as active as they want to be. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're boring or not interesting. It just means that they have a lot going on in their lives. It's easy to feel like a bad friend, though. Yes. Right? Like, I, I do struggle with that uh, just because of work, because I'm out of town so often that I'm just not feeling very social when I get home. Right? I just kind of want to sit on my blue couch and do nothing. And so this comes back to, I guess, a reminder that I need to communicate to people that I do care. I do have an interest in seeing you. It maybe won't be in the volume that it used to be or in the volume that it is with your other friends, right? We may not see each other as often, but that doesn't mean I, I care less. And so that, do, do you feel as though that's a burden where the onus of communicating that falls on you? Or do you feel like it's a blessing in that you are more clear about your desires and boundaries and it leads to better relationships? I think it's a bit of both. Being disabled, it has taught me that I do need to communicate more um, about my own needs and to set firm boundaries and to be very firm with them um, and the people around me and letting them know like, hey, I would love to see you, but I just will be in so much pain if I go out tonight. Um, But on the other hand, as you said, it does put a lot of the onus on me. um, And a lot of people think that Um, because I don't make plans very often that I'll reach out to them when I have time when that's not necessarily true. I don't know when I'll have the time. I don't know what I'll be feeling. And so often making plans for me is, you know, um, I'm very reluctant to do it because I often have to cancel last minute or things like that. And when you're the ones making the plan, it feels even worse. Uh, so do you prefer last minute plans then the opportunity because you you know how you're feeling right now you know if you're going to be up for this do you do you find that that's helpful yeah usually like a a day's notice is really good because then I can kind of schedule out my day uh, to kind of make sure that there's time around it but I also have a better idea of how I'm feeling um, how, how the rest of the week has gone so far Sometimes I make plans at the start of the week, and by the time uh, that day rolls around, I'm like, I did not realize that five meetings were going to pop up this week or this and that, and it's uh, it's definitely difficult making plans. Um, I don't think that there is, like, a perfect time to do it. Um, I think I just want people to understand that when I cancel last minute, it has nothing to do with them, and it doesn't have anything to do with my reliability. It just has to do with... Um, how I'm feeling and what my body is doing. I think reading your article, the it was in them. Yeah. Uh, I read your article last night and I felt so many things <laughs> after reading it. I was I was angry at the kid who taunted you in the third grade. I felt um, I was much more aware of my privilege after having had read it, and I was just more educated, uh, not being aware of how you have to go about your day, how you go about your, how you've lived your life. I, I was legit upset. Like, I, I won't lie, I was tearing up. And I don't think that was the point of your article. I think it was just to be like, this is my lived experience. But I felt like it helped me on so many levels even just being aware of what other people are dealing with. And now speaking with you, understanding that how this impacts your friendships and your relationships and how you need to be very probably selective with the people that you're connecting with so that they understand when you cancel something last minute. It's not because you don't care about them. It's because there's something else 
going on. So I, I don't know that I necessarily had a question or anything other than I wish that everyone could read the article that you wrote because I found it so, um, so, so informative. Like it was just, it was great. You can tell I'm clearly at a bit of a loss for words here. But do you find that you are um, very selective with friends and relationships? Like, at what point do you disclose what your lived experience is? Because it's not something that's, uh, incontinence is not something that is visible, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. I I would argue generally. So at what point do you feel comfortable disclosing to someone uh, th- this fact. It's something that I've really struggled with disclosing, um, especially having um, been bullied in my childhood. As a little aside, you might be uh, slightly comforted to know that um, that particular bully was dealt with by my brother uh, when he threw a bike at him. Um, <laughs> that's a then, strong kid to throw a bike. And I've got to uh, say, that's a very, it makes me feel a little bit better because <laughs> I thought you were going to say something G rated in Disney where I was like, Everything came full circle and this and that, but it's like, no, my brother just threw a bike at him. <laughs> Eat <Yeah>. it. <laughs> um, he was a big bully. He also bullied one of my brother's friends. And um, after my brother found out uh, what he had said about me and uh, how he was making me feel, because it was a, a discussion that ended up coming up at dinner one night. And when my brother found out, he was like, what? Excuse me? Um, and then the next day, uh, the incident with the bike happened. Um, and then <laughs> after that, the um, that particular bully um, disappeared from my school uh, and he <laughs> moved away. And so I didn't the have end. to deal with that there bully ever again. Pot of gold. I think it's interesting rainbow. that your brother has an incident with a bike because Brandon's brother <laughs> also has an incident with the bike. Which involved copious amounts of wine, a bicycle helmet, and a McDonald's, and a 24-kilometer run. And so. no bike to be found. And if you ever meet me in person at a bar, I will tell you that story. It's a good one. But <laughs> we'll, bring, we'll bring it back to Tamari. And, you know, Brandon was asking if you're more selective. I also wonder if the quality of your relationships, if you feel they're, they're becoming richer, the better you understand yourself and the more you, you know, acknowledge how different components of your identity um, need to be clearly conveyed to other people. Definitely. I've definitely found that... Um the more that I understand my own identities, the more I accept my own identities, um, especially when it comes to disability. My friendships have grown stronger. Um, I may not have as many friendships as I did before I disclosed, but I've found that the friendships that I do have are incredibly fulfilling and loving, and um, they just bring me so much hope and so much joy. Um, I'm getting a little teary. Uh but yeah, I've definitely found that the people that I'm connected to now have changed my life for the better. They're all, all the people that I connect with now, they understand me in terms of my gender, they understand me in terms of my cultural background, and they understand me in terms of my disability. And having friends that, you know, when I have to cancel last minute, tell me, please take care of yourself. I want you to rest up and, you know, we'll, we can meet up any other time. You know, shoot me a message if you need anything. I've had friends offer to buy me dinner um, when I've been to, uh, when I've been struggling with finding work because of my disability. I've had people, you know, send me money to help with bills. Um, 
like it's just such an incredible community that I've built and I'm just so incredibly grateful for for them because it's really changed my mind and it has definitely <clears throat> changed the quality of my life in a way um, I didn't foresee. Um, definitely before all of these these changes started coming to light for other people, um, I felt much un like much more unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't realize it at the time how unhappy I really was um, until now. Now I look back and I'm like, how was I living like that for, for all those years? And I had this dark cloud that was hanging over my head and I was constantly you know, afraid of telling people about my disability. Um, for a really long time, it was invisible. And so um, I think you, you asked earlier, like, how do I decide when to disclose? And um, the answer was for a very long time, I just didn't. Um, I had a best friend I had known for three years at one point who did not know about my disability at all. And we talked about everything else. Hmm. And uh, I know it seems strange, like, how do you avoid that? but it was something I learned how to do from a very young age. To protect yourself, I'm sure. Yeah, and it was also because my uh, extended family wasn't as accepting. Uh, they didn't say anything or do anything specifically, but it was definitely something they never really talked about, and they never got involved with. It was something that was, you know, my parents dealt with it, and that was it. They didn't really ask questions. They didn't try to help out. Um, things like uh, when I was a baby, I had to be catheterized, and um, that was something that my my mother knew how to do, and um, I had a nurse do it, but the rest of my family didn't really want to know how to do it. So when the rest of my cousins were having sleepovers and getting to know the rest of their family, I would always have to go home at the end of the night because I would either have to have my parents catheterize me or a nurse. And that was something my, my family didn't want to be involved in or talk about. And so I was taught from a very young age, you don't talk about it. It's something you hide. And if you can try to act as normal as possible, that's what you do. And did that create feelings of shame? Definitely. Around disability? And, and can you tell me, how do you begin to overcome that type of shame? Um, it's a long process, and it's one that I'm still going through. Um, actually speaking so openly about it is part of my kind of coping. It's how I've been kind of coming to terms with some aspects of myself and um, putting it out there and having people respond to it has been kind of the biggest factor for me um, in, in kind of relinquishing that shame. I no longer feel like these are things I have to keep hidden because there have been so many people who have reached out to me after um, the incontinence article and, and some other other posts I've, I've written um, where people from the disabled community have reached out to me and been like, thank you for talking about this. I thought I was alone. Um, it makes me feel so much better to know that there are other young people who are facing these things as well. Um, and that really helped me because um, it made me feel like I was doing something important. And no matter how I feel about my identities, they've contributed something important to the world. I like the way you talk about the joy you derive from relationships. And I think that one of the challenges for folks without disabilities, uh, because of a lack of exposure, because ableism is our norm in our culture and so dominant, there is this drive or tendency 
to move toward people who do have disabilities with, with either pity, uh, with fear, um, with celebration. Like I think of those, these campaigns that portray anybody who lives with a disability as a hero. And for most folks with disabilities, that's not how you want to be approached with, you don't need people to feel sorry for you and you don't need someone to champion you. Um, I think about those ads of, I think it was a Sick, sick Kids campaign. Oh, the verses. Right, where there, and then there's a language around that. The inspiration porn? Yes. Yeah, you're talking about inspiration porn. Um, and so inspiration porn is this kind of portrayal of disabled people as uh, people who overcome their disability. And uh, if they just pull up their bootstraps hard enough, they can, you know, uh, do everything like a normal person. Um, and a lot of the times the purpose of these stories is to say to able-bodied people, well, if they can do it, so can you. You just have to work hard enough. And that's not always true. Um, there are definitely a lot of disabilities, um, and, you know, there are a lot of disabled people who will say, yeah, there are things that I definitely cannot do, um, no matter how hard I try. Um, and for a lot of them, they just don't see the point in trying that hard to do something just because that's what, you know, quote unquote, normal people do. Um, it's definitely been a problem. I mean, um, I know that especially for wheelchair users, they get a lot of, oh, you're so brave or you're so inspirational just for being on the street, you know, just getting from point A to point B. And for them, they're just getting to work or going to visit family or whatever it is that they're doing. They're just going about their day. They're not seeing themselves as inspirational or doing something brave. It's just doing what they have to do. It's right? also just doing something differently. It doesn't have to be better or worse. It's just different yeah um but i do want to go back to your the the campaign you're not saying anything disparaging about that versus campaign like it's great no, to bring awareness and i've also but i do think some folks with disability were critical of that campaign and if we're not centering the voices of people with disability but we're using their images to raise money i think there's something to be said so the so many people who are disabled were critical of that campaign is that for sure yeah. um i definitely saw a huge response and a huge backlash to that campaign when it came out um, from the disabled community specifically. Um, and as a sick kids patient um, or a former sick kids patient, uh, it was kind of weird for me too. Um, I think a lot of times we think this superhero angle uh, is helpful for disabled kids and things like that. Um, because there's a lot of talk about representation and, you know, we don't have a lot of disabled superheroes, or if we do, um, they're very normative in other ways. You know, if you think of Daredevil, he's still a white, cisgender, heterosexual man. Um, what's his disability from someone who doesn't know anything about comics? He's blind. Yeah. Okay. Oh, um, and, but, but I, I think I'm confused then because maybe I thought that the sick kid campaign was about, so I, I'm wrong totally that it was trying to raise funds for young children with cancers. It wasn't, so I'm thinking of a completely different. Uh, so the campaign what is for, um, they're raising money to build like a new sick kids hospital, um, but they're using the images of these children as kind of superheroes um, battling their conditions. Um, that's kind of the the images and the, the narrative that they've presented for these these ads. Um, 
like when I think their most recent one has um, all the kids kind of like running into this big open lot and starting to lay down bricks and things like that. Um, and it's just like a very weird image. Um, that one I always found kind of weird because it's like we are literally building the hospital. <laughs> um, and that was like, I don't know Is if that's the code? image. <laughs> Might be better than some builders out there. Yeah, to that's, be honest. I'm that's in real true, estate Brandon's and I know exactly what that's all about. Well, I, I think um, when we think about nothing about us without us, if you're going to use the images of any person in a campaign, um, I think it's important that the voices are also heard, mm. right? So it's, and we see this, for instance, around race, the trope of a strong black woman, for example, and the pressure that that puts on black women to not be vulnerable, to not speak emotionally or on men. Right. Men mm -hmm. always having to be tough, always having to be, you know, strong, always having to be sexual, the pressure that that puts on. So I think, you know, in some ways, inspiration porn is aligned with these really limited scopes or notions of what a person can be based on one singular element of their identity. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a person with a disability who in, who appreciates that campaign and who likes to feel that way or be represented that way. But Again, no one person can speak with for an entire group. And part of why I really appreciate um, to go back to your conversations about your friendships and the relationships you have and the joy they bring is that quality of life is important regardless of whether you have a disability or don't have a disability. And there is this, again, there's a, a belief that, oh, that you're lucky to have made it or you're just you're, you're struggling to survive. But relationships and sex can be important to folks with and without disabilities. So can you tell us a little bit about how sex plays into your life and um, how managing sex or how you approach sex differently with your disability? So for me, um, sex is something, my sex drive is something that kind of goes up and down depending on how my body is feeling. Uh, like recently I've been experiencing um, a lot of pain and fatigue because I just started working full time. I've um, been kind of pushing myself a little bit and trying to work as much in the office as possible because it's a, a huge learning opportunity for me. Um, but by the time the weekend rolls around or by the time I get home at the end of the day, uh, and, you know, I'm not necessarily feeling sexy. Uh, I'm just feeling tired and exhausted. And I just want to sleep. There have definitely been times when, um, like, it hasn't gotten rid of my sex drive. It, you know, I've had my disability my whole life, and I've had a uh, very fulfilling sex life um, in that time. Um, you know, there was a point in my life where I felt like all I was doing was having sex, um, which oh, was... the days. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and I feel like it's, it's not actually that different than when people just stop having as much sex just as they age. You know, priorities change, uh, circumstances change, you know, issues. Stress levels change. Exactly. Um, but there have definitely been times where um, I've used my disability to my advantage, uh, sort of like getting massages from my partner and um, having more kind of touchy-feely moments like that that aren't necessarily about penetration or the kind of conventional sex, um, but I can still get a lot of pleasure out of, um, and that can often lead to other types of sex um, because at that point I'm more relaxed, I can enjoy things more because if you know, my pain has been massaged out, I can actually get in the moment and enjoy the sensations I'm experiencing. 
Um, I remember that we had interviewed a gentleman, Courtney Brame, and he, oh, yeah. um, his Instagram handles H on my chest. And, I, and I re- his uh, podcast is called Something Positive for Positive People. For Positive People. Or and, Positive and Folks. And it was such an interesting uh, podcast because he highlighted that his relationships after disclosing like you commented, were much more, the relationships that he maintained were so much more fulfilling. And I think it goes back to, and, you know, just tying that into the sex component, it's this idea that when I think of sex, or at least when I used to think about sex, it was penetrative sex, when there is so much more (laughs) about what can be enjoyed if you, if that's not your only focus. And if it does result in that, if that's your goal, penetrative sex, that even that initial buildup can make it so much better if you get to that point, but you don't have to. It's, again, reframing the idea of what sex is, and it doesn't have to just be one thing. For sure. So you talked a little a little bit about your sex drive, whether it's you know up or down. What about communicating with partners or a new partner around sex? How do you approach that? Um, now that I am more open and honest, I just tell people straight out, like, I may not be up for sex all the time and that's nothing to do with you. I just may be in pain or I may just be tired. And it kind of goes into, uh, the same things with just having the time and energy. Um, you know, if I'm not seeing people in person often, um, there's not often as much pressure to have sex because, you're you're not in person you're you're not having to kind of follow the same social scripts um and so you know sometimes that can lead to um like sexting or or you know phone sex or you know things like that um or other times it just means that I experience a different kind of relationship with people um I definitely found that before I disclosed my disability and before I kind of put my my body's needs first before my sexual needs, um, I felt a lot of pressure to have sex kind of right from the start. And I found that um, a lot of my relationships with people were very sex-based. Um, you know, I was hooking up with people and, you know, once the making out stopped, our kind of relationship stopped. Um, but now, now my relationships are all kind of based on um, that initial connection, actually communicating and talking and what we can bring to the relationship aside from sex. And so the sex just gets to be this awesome bonus I have with people, with some people and, you know, I don't have with other people. And um, it stopped taking priority, but that doesn't mean that I stopped enjoying it. Right. So what do people get wrong about sex and disability? What do you want people to know? Um, disability will affect everybody's sex life differently, um, depending on what your disability is. Um, for some people, um, the sensation of touch can just be too much if they experience sensory overload or, um, you know, uh, they, can, they may not be able to do certain positions or things like that, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to have sex or they can't have sex. Um, or that there isn't workarounds to everything. Um, there's a lot of uh, misinformation around wheelchair users, especially paralyzed wheelchair users, uh, having sex. And people think like, oh, you know, like men with penises or people with penises can't get erections or can't have sex if they're paralyzed. 
And that's not true for everybody. It might be true for some people, but not true for everybody. And I know lots of wheelchair users who have great, awesome sex. And, you know, it. they never really, once they found partners who were willing to accommodate them and work with them and figure out what works best for the both of them, you know, I've never heard complaints about their sex life. So I think that's that's all that I really want people to know is that everybody's different, um, regardless of whether you have a disability or not. And you just got to work with what you have and you got to accommodate each other. And, you know, in sex, it should be about everyone's pleasure. And so you should be figuring out how both of you can get the most pleasure you can out of it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me to be here. And you have a number of links where people can read and learn more. Do you want to share your website? Yes, uh, you can find my work at indivisiblewriting.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Murky Waters. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you will have links somewhere. Yeah, we'll put all those links in there for you. Um, and yeah, I think if you search up Indivisible Writing on Facebook as well, I should uh, my Facebook page should pop up as well. Awesome. Um, Yeah, that should be all the links. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you. And thank you for listening. And a big thanks, of course, to Desire Resorts for your ongoing support of this podcast. Be sure to check them out at Desire Experience on all social media, wherever you're at. Have a wonderful week. We'll be back next Friday and every Friday with a whole new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.